0: Hello, greetings and welcome to the iFormRx podcast where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of the iThormerX podcast. For most ambulatory care and community pharmacists, hypertension is the most common chronic disease they encounter in their practice. And over the past few years, there's been strong interest in developing a variety of mobile and remote monitoring applications to support patient care. And it seems relatively intuitive that the outcomes of care would be improved if we could provide patients with ongoing feedback about medication adherence and the achievement of therapeutic goals. And a number of digital tools have been developed to do just that. However, such tools aren't free. And while more monitoring data might be helpful and useful, it can also lead to information overload. So it's important to formally test any new technology to determine if it truly delivers some tangible health benefits and at what cost. That's why the Home BP study, which was published in January 2021 in BMJ, caught my eye. The study examined the use of home BP monitoring application that prompted patients to self-titrate their antihypertensive medications. And here to talk about the home BP study and its implications in practice are Dr. Megan Supple and Dr. Mary Taylor from Cone Health in beautiful Greensboro, North Carolina, and Dr. Joseph Sassine from the University of Colorado on Schultz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. Dr. Supple is a clinical pharmacy specialist whose primary care responsibilities focus on patients with cardiovascular disease, and Dr. Taylor is a PGY-2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident. Together, Dr. Supple and Dr. Taylor wrote a commentary for iFormRx, which we've posted on the iFormRx website. Also contributing to today's conversation is Joe Sassine. Many of our listeners are familiar with Dr. Sassine. He is a clinical pharmacy specialist practicing in family medicine and currently the president of the National Lipid Association. So Megan and Joe have been longtime contributors to iFormerX. Indeed, Megan is currently a member of our iFormerX advisory board. So Megan, Joe, it's great to have you both back on the iFormerX podcast. And Mary, thank you for becoming a first-time contributor, but I hope it won't be the last time that you contribute.
1: Thank you for having us. It's great to be here.
2: Thank you for having me, Stuart. It's always a pleasure.
1: Yes, agreed.
3: I'm definitely excited to participate in my first podcast. Yay!
0: So first, before we uh, talk about the study you reviewed in your commentary, I'd like to get a better sense of how home monitoring tools and digital applications are being used in your practices. Are you using remote monitoring tools? And if so, for what purposes? And are there any tools out there that you see are particularly promising and perhaps would like to test in your practice?
3: So great question. Currently in our cardiology clinic, I've seen some patients sync their blood pressure monitors to an app on their cell phone. From there, they can export this data into a PDF and email me their blood pressure readings. This has been super helpful in clinic, especially when monitoring patients virtually due to COVID. Both our family medicine and cardiology clinics use 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure machines, which I think has been phenomenal at helping gauge if a patient truly has hypertension or if they have white coat hypertension. It's also been helpful in determining if a patient's blood pressure dips appropriately at night or if it doesn't, which can lead to appropriate medication adjustments. Although not for blood pressure, I have actually started using the Dexcom G6 continuous blood glucose monitor for my diabetes patients in the family medicine clinic. Similar to the 24-hour blood pressure cuff, I think these tools are so useful because they can provide us with an extensive amount of data. The Dexcom literally monitors a patient's blood sugar every five minutes, so you can get a clearer picture of how the patient is truly doing. It is also helpful to dose-adjust medications and also to educate patients. When a patient eats a specific food, so for example, in diabetes, if they're eating rice versus cereal versus pasta versus desserts, they can see how high it spikes their blood sugar, and it really helps them understand why portion control is so important. The Dexcom also makes it a lot easier to monitor patients in a virtual setting and bring them to goal faster due to how much data it provides you.
2: Our experience at the University of Colorado is that we've been using home blood pressure monitoring quite a bit over the past years. During the pandemic, we've actually used it quite a bit more. The way that we're finding success with our home blood pressure monitoring is to either have our patient purchase or provide them, under some circumstances, their own home blood pressure monitor. We train them using videos and also through voice-to-voice or sometimes face-to-face education. And they measure their blood pressure on a routine basis and enter it into EPIC using our tools available within our electronic health record. Another way that we capture these patients is if they're not savvy enough to do that or are not comfortable is we simply have them report their blood pressure values during our telephonic or video visits. Thirdly, similar to in Cone Health, we do have patients that have certain monitors which are Bluetooth-enabled, where it sends their blood pressure readings directly into Epic, where one of our clinical pharmacy teams can respond to that. Regardless of which model that we use, whether it's home blood pressure monitoring in the patient, manually entering values, electronically having them sent in, or verbally sharing them during a visit, our pharmacists have found them very effective and helpful In allowing titration of medication therapy under our collaborative drug therapy management protocols. This is a very large initiative at the University of Colorado where our clinical pharmacists are part of the population health team, where we're targeting patients with uncontrolled hypertension and using these tools to empower patients and for us to actually attain a higher goal blood pressure rate.
0: So let's talk about the HOME-BP study. Uh, The paper was published online in BMJ Open in January 2021 and is entitled HOME and Online Management and Evaluation of Blood Pressure, HOME-BP, Using a Digital Intervention in Poorly Controlled Hypertension Randomized Control Trial. For those in our audience who haven't read the paper, Mary, can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and findings?
3: Yeah, of course. So the home blood pressure trial was a randomized unblinded control trial that assessed the efficacy and cost effectiveness of utilizing a digital intervention for hypertension management in 76 primary care offices all around the UK. There were 622 patients randomized to digital intervention or usual care. Patients randomized to digital intervention received free blood pressure cuffs and were advised with automated email reminders to take two morning blood pressure readings for seven days each month and to enter online. The mean home blood pressure was then calculated in that blood pressure reading provided to the participants and the healthcare practitioners. When mean home blood pressure was above target for two consecutive months, patients would implement a pre-specified medication adjustment virtually. Also, patients were provided with an optional tool outlining user-selected evidence-based lifestyle modifications and behavioral support. As for the usual care group, these participants received routine hypertension care that typically consisted of clinic blood pressure monitoring to titrate drugs with appointments and drug changes made at the discretion of the general practitioner. Participants were not prevented from self-monitoring. As for blood pressure goals, the goal blood pressure for each patient was based on the NICE guidelines, which uses the goals of less than 135 over 85 for patients younger than 80 without diabetes or less than 145 over 85 for patients over 80 years old without diabetes Or the third blood pressure goal, which was less than 135 over 75 for patients with diabetes, regardless of their age. As for baseline characteristics, the mean age was 66 years. 46% of the patients were female, 94% were white, and the mean baseline blood pressure was 151 over 85. And the average duration of hypertension was around 11 years. The most common comorbidities included patients with diabetes, which was about 10%, and those with CKD, which was about 8%. Less than 7% of patients had a history of an ASCVD event. Patients in either group were on one to two blood pressure medications, although the specific blood pressure medications and doses were not listed. Mean blood pressure decreased from 152 over 86 to 138 over 80 in the treatment group and from 152 over 85 to 142 over 80 in the control group. Overall, there was a mean difference in systolic blood pressure of about 3.4 and a mean difference in diastolic blood pressure of 0.5 when the second and third blood pressure measurements were used. Overall, self-monitoring may be more beneficial in younger patients with a standard blood pressure goal and low comorbidity burden. Within trial costs showed an incremental cost increase of 38 pounds, which translates to 52 U.S. dollars between the treatment group compared to the usual group. However, the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio was 11 pounds, which translates to $15 per millimeter of mercury reduction for the treatment group. Patients in the intervention group noted increased confidence in understanding and managing their condition. Adverse events were similar between treatment arms, however, symptomatic hypotension was not listed as an adverse event.
0: So the HOME-BP is actually one of the larger home monitoring and self-management studies ever conducted with over 600 patients enrolled in the study. But the study isn't a large outcome-driven study like so many of the landmark hypertension treatment studies that we use to inform our practice today. So obviously, we cannot determine if this approach to care saves lives or reduces cardiovascular events. But it does suggest that a tool like this can help patients achieve optimal blood pressure control a bit more often than usual care. But every study has its strengths and limitations. What do you perceive to be the key strengths of the HOME-BP study? Are there any potential confounders or sources of bias that you think may have impacted the results? And what about the generalizability of the study?
1: The HOME-BP trial had a few key strengths. As you mentioned, it was one of the larger and longer of the HOME-Monitoring Hypertension trials coming in at about a year-long follow-up, and the study investigators also over-enrolled participants by 20% since they anticipated a higher dropout rate. So that helped them to ensure adequate power and improve the external validity of the study. Overall, the trial results are generalizable to patients on one to three medications for their blood pressure, who are willing to monitor their blood pressure at home, and who have access to the Internet. Women were also represented surprisingly well and made up about 45% of the trial participants, so the results do apply to both men and women. And all training for the intervention arm was completed online, which is advantageous for other clinical sites to implement similar interventions in their practice settings too. Aside from the specific blood pressure monitoring, including disease state education in online educational tools, was a helpful strategy used in the trial to help increase patient empowerment. However, there are a few limitations to this trial as well. 47% of the patients in the usual care group monitored their blood pressure at home at some point during the trial. Many of those patients then brought their home blood pressure readings to their providers, who then used that data to make medication adjustments. So that may underestimate the effect size in the treatment group. The trial also did not publish the medication adjustment algorithm, so it's a bit unclear which specific medication changes were made throughout the trial or if therapy was being optimized appropriately. Medication adherence was assessed using the Medication Adherence Rating Scale Questionnaire, which actually measures patient beliefs around their medications rather than actual medication adherence rates. It's also important to note that the trial was conducted only in the UK, and cost effectiveness was assessed during the trial, but healthcare-related costs vary drastically between the U.S. and the U.K., and costs in the U.S. are exponentially higher on average. So this does make it a bit tougher to extrapolate the cost effectiveness to the U.S., and lastly, a few key populations were excluded in this trial who may have benefited from close monitoring and disease state education. In particular, patients with very elevated baseline blood pressure, above 180 over 110, and patients without internet access were excluded. Non-white participants were also underrepresented.
2: I strongly agree with those criticisms and insights on this particular study, and I just want to expound on a few of them. This study was not conducted in the United States, but I think it actually does provide good evidence to pharmacists, clinical pharmacists in the United States who may want to implement similar type programs. I am concerned that 94% were British white patients, which really does not represent many of our patient populations. But a few things that I, I want to highlight is the goal values that were used And in Britain, they did use higher goal blood pressure values than we use in the United States, particularly in older patients. They used quite high goals. The reason I think that's relevant to consider is that there was a difference in results in the younger cohort versus the older cohort. And it did appear that younger patients that were using the standard blood pressure goal, which was the lowest one used in the UK, actually had benefit where the older population, especially those using that high blood pressure goal that I do not advocate for at all, that they did not benefit. So perhaps the best use of these data may be in your younger population who have lower blood pressure goals, excluding, as was mentioned, resistant hypertension, which would be really tempting to use this methodology. But this really was targeting sort of that average hypertensive patient on one to three medicines, which I think does frame our population a little bit differently. Another thing that I think was very interesting was the power of the patient communication with the health professional. There was a perception of patients in the intervention group that they were perhaps healthier because they reported that they lost more weight, though the numeric data did not support a difference. Patients perceived that they did, and I think that's a global marker that perhaps patients may have some enthusiasm for the additional interaction with a health professional I also have to say that they didn't use clinical pharmacists in this study, and I would have liked to have seen that.
0: So what do you all think are the implications for pharmacy practice? I think some pharmacists and indeed some physicians and nurse practitioners might see this kind of technology as threatening. The idea that a patient would titrate their medications and be educated about appropriate self-care behaviors by some software program or a smartphone app is ultimately about replacing health practitioners, uh, perhaps. Someday in the not-too-distant future, we won't need any health professionals to monitor chronic diseases because we have a bunch of smartphone apps that will automatically monitor your health and prompt us to take our medications and give us helpful dietary tips and provide us ongoing feedback about our health status. Is this the future of healthcare and will any of us have jobs in the future? What do you think?
1: I am hopeful that we won't be losing our jobs over this. I think overall it would be very difficult for technology to completely replace healthcare providers. There are so many nuances and patient-specific factors that we account for when creating specific and patient-centered healthcare plans. Even if we used preset medication algorithms, there's always clinical exceptions that a human provider, not a computer, would account for much better. For example, our hypertension guidelines state that an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, a thiazide diuretic, or a calcium channel blocker are our first-line options for hypertension. What if that patient has other comorbidities like systolic heart failure or gout or an MI or diabetes or they're African-American? There are so many other factors to consider that alter that preset algorithm and allow us to provide better patient care in a lot of those examples by optimizing medications for their other disease states at the same time. And it would be incredibly challenging to create technology that sensitive. It's also important to keep in mind that not all of our patients have access to technology and that may limit the use of self-monitoring. Overall, we should view technology as a way to augment our patient care. Technology provides us with more patient-specific data points, whether it be through home blood pressure or continuous glucose monitoring, to help us optimize care plans. Technology helps with general barriers to care when office space is limited, like when we have same-day video visits, and technology can serve as a great tool to improve patient education or to provide medication reminders and improve patient adherence. But ultimately, technology can't replace the trust and relationships between providers and patients that are so important for effective patient care?
2: Well, Stuart, that's a very provocative question, but a realistic question. I'm a strong advocate that the patient-clinician interaction and discussion with that shared decision-making really is a key to chronic disease state management. I think if there's any silver lining to our pandemic that we're going through is that patients are more and more willing, I believe, to use some of these technologies and so that may open the door a bit more, and we need to actually push the door completely open to use these technologies to the best of our abilities. We have to be careful about not being replaced by robots. But I think, you know, when you think of the typical chat box that's used, the chat bots that actually, when you ask a question online, it sometimes isn't very personal. People know that, patients know that, and they get frustrated with that. So I think they do value the, I guess, marriage. Between technology and human interaction. Even in this trial, the Home BP trial, their protocol did require that an email was sent to a provider with a suggested change where that provider could implement it or not. And I think that highlights that there always is going to be a need for a well trained clinician, a la clinical pharmacist, to actually make that connection with the patient for implementation to encourage lifestyle modification and adherence that simply cannot be replaced. By electronic means exclusively.
0: Well, Megan, Mary, Joe, I want to thank all of you for joining me today to discuss the treatment of hypertension and the use of smart apps as well as monitoring tools to guide our patients. It's clear from your comments that you believe that the Home BP study had promising results, that some patients clearly benefited from the intervention and could be given greater autonomy for their care and empowered to do certain things on their own through the use of technology. Well, tell us what you think. Only IFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. Any health professional can join IFormerX. It's free, so sign up today. And if you'd like to earn continuing education and board recertification credit for reading the commentary and listening to this podcast, just click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to make select content available for board recertification. So check that out by clicking on the link at the bottom of the commentary posted on our website. And lastly, a special thank you to all the community pharmacists in the United States and around the globe who are busy administering COVID-19 immunizations and helping us end the worldwide pandemic. We know that many patients are hesitant to get the vaccine and many people distrust the healthcare system. So thank you for making healthcare services accessible to the communities where our patients live and work and for being a trusted voice. We are indebted to your service and commitment to care. Thank you, and until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off.